Okay, let's, let's all turn, if we would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. If you're a guest and perhaps don't have a Bible with you, that you should, if you're on the main floor especially, you should find one in the songbook rack in front of you. And uh, you can turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and we have found our way into chapter 14 at this point. Now, last week, because we had been out of our study of the book of Revelation for a little while, we, we took a, a pretty good period of time to just kind of regroup ourselves and remind ourselves of where we are in this study. Now, today I'm going to give you the 30-second version, okay? In the book of Revelation, what he does is he takes us all the way through the church age, all the way through the tribulation period, all the way through the millennium, the new heaven, the new earth, and right on into eternity. The longest section of the book, from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 19, it deals with a seven-year period, a period of time called the tribulation period. I, I say this almost every week just to remind you and to inform our guests, this is the period of time that Jesus referred to as the time that there's never been a time like it before it. And he said, oh no, my, there'll never be a time like it after it. And what he does is he peels off some space in the book of Revelation to say, now listen, you don't want to miss what is going to be taking place on this planet during this time. You don't want to miss the teaching of it. Let, let me assure you, you do want to miss the event. And I think the reason that he takes so much time to tell us what's going to be taking place during that time is so that, so that it catches our attention. And we don't allow ourselves... To live life on this planet like a lot of folks are living right now, just oblivious to God, living as if he does not even exist, and yet are going to find themselves in the very, very, very near future, according to what the Bible says, they're going to find themselves thrust into the midst of that horrendous period of time. Okay, I lied. It was a little more than 30 seconds, but now we're on to it. In Revelation chapter 14, we're met with a, a group of people that are referred to as the 144,000. Now, we saw them back in chapter 7. There's no doubt about who this group of people is. They are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's not what I think. That's exactly what Revelation chapter 7 says. That's who these people are. These people are not in this dispensation. There is not anybody on this planet right now that knows that they are a part of the 144,000. It doesn't matter what group they identify themselves with. There is nobody on this planet right now that is part of that group of 144,000. That is a group of people that is going to be manifest on this planet after Jesus has come in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 through 18, and he has removed the group of people who have identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, he removes those people, and at that point, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, just like he did with the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear to 144,000 Jews, 144,000 Jews who have never one time had anybody share the gospel with them, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel himself is going to share that gospel with them. They will be miraculously saved and will become his servants to carry his message throughout the earth all through the tribulation period. And again, that's what's spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 7. And what is so incredible about the, the ministry of this group of people is that what the Bible says is that the number of people that are going to respond to their message 
It says that they're going to be from every tongue and tribe and kindred and people and nation. And he says it's such a multitude. John says, I don't even know how to explain it to you. I don't even know how to tell you the, the number of them. It, it, it goes beyond a number. Okay, now obviously, uh, John wasn't understanding the fact that right now on this planet there's about six billion people. It's going to be far less than six billion that are going to be responding to that message. A lot of them are going to be removed at the rapture of the church. And then there's going to be a lot of people that are going to take the mark of the beast that we talked about in Revelation chapter 13, the chapter just prior to the revealing of this, this group of people, the 144,000. Now, when we were in chapter 7, the 144,000 were on the earth. They were in the midst of carrying out this ministry, of, of going throughout the entire world, carrying the gospel. Now, when we see them in chapter 14, we see them in verse 1. He says, And I look, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And now this group of people, their work on the earth has been ended. We are near the end of the tribulation period in Revelation chapter 14. This group of people has been already raptured and is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what John does is he begins to describe this group of people. And what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to take John's description. And because this is such an incredible group of people, because of the witness that they carry out, because the lives that they live are just so absolutely impeccable, and because what God says to us in Revelation chapter 3 about the lives that we live right now in the last days before Jesus Christ does come in the clouds, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ says is true of us, we've been trying to look at this group of people and say, what are the lessons that we can learn, that we can make application in our lives so that our lives can be changed. Sometimes, you know, it just, it takes the example of a person. You know, we can say, we're all supposed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we're all going, yeah, that's, that's true. But boy, when you begin to look at a group of people, people that are just like you and me, and you begin to see the qualities that are in their life, sometimes it just helps to be able to have somebody like that to be able to lay your life next to and that's what we've been doing for a long time uh, 24 weeks in in fact we, we've been talking about these these lessons now the word Laodicean for you folks who are guests that in Revelation 2 and 3 as as our Lord is explaining the seven periods of church history the last and final one is the the group of people referred to as the Laodiceans the word means the rights of the people. And we're living at a time where in Christianity it is a very selfish, self-centered, self-seeking Christianity that wants to know what's in it for me. That's the period of time in which we live, the Laodicean church period. So we as Laodiceans are looking at this group of people, the 144,000, and seeing what it is that we can apply in our lives, that we can learn from this group of people. We saw, first of all, that there is visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and His Father. We saw letter A, the seal of the 144,000, as they're called in Revelation 7, servants of our God. They receive a seal at the beginning of the tribulation. We find out in verse 1 of chapter 14 that this seal is the Father's name. The Father's name is Jehovah. And He writes on their forehead the name Jehovah so that it is visible all through the tribulation period whose they are. 
they are none other than the fathers. They're Jehovah's. And what we began to learn from that is, is we look and we compare Scripture with Scripture, what we find is that for those of us who are servants of our God in the church age, there's also a seal that we've received, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, is that he hasn't written on us like he will the 144,000 with ink, but what he's done is he's written in our hearts. And because he's written some things in our hearts that is that seal, it changes the way that we live so that there's visible evidence in the life of every person who is truly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's visible evidence. In the, in the tribulation period, if you want to know who the 144,000 is, just look for the seal. If you want to know in this dispensation who is really for real, look for the seal. What it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 is that the Lord knows them that are His. They've got a seal. You know what the seal is? They have departed from iniquity. And somebody that does not in their life have the mark of ownership on their life evidenced by departing from iniquity it's somebody that has had some kind of experience with Jesus other than the salvation that Jesus offers. So there's visible evidence through the seal. But we saw in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 14 that not only are they made visible by that seal, but they're also made visible by their submission, by their submission, the submission of the 144,000. What it says is they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They're right there. They constantly, 24-7, they follow the Lamb. And what we see as we begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, the same thing is true of those of us who claim to be servants of God in this dispensation right now before he, the, the rapture takes place, listen, if you really are a child of God, it will be visibly evident to the rest of the world by your submission to him, by the fact that you follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. And if you're looking at your life and you don't see that you've departed from iniquity and you don't see that you follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth, again, I, I want... I hope that what God will do through this is just get your attention and say, listen, you're kidding yourself. If those things are not visibly evident in your life, something is drastically wrong because the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. And he says in the book of 1 John, hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And if you say that you know him and you don't obey what he says, what John says is, where are you coming from with that? Where would you ever get that? And so there's some great lessons that we can learn about the visible evidence of the identification of this group of people because it'll be the same in our life. Then last week, we began to look at the audible, the audible evidence of their connection with the Lamb and his Father. And we saw in verses 2 and 3 that John says it was so incredible. Here it was. I heard this voice and it, it just thundered throughout heaven. It was like the voice of many waters, he says. I heard this voice. We, we saw that voice back in chapter 1. We saw it back in chapter 4 as he came around the throne. It was the voice of, of who, y'all? Hello? It was you? It was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That voice just echoes throughout 
the throne room of God. And here's the 144,000. And they respond with the music. And they begin to play their harps, it says. And then, that with the music that they're playing with their harps, they begin to, to sing a song. And what he says is the song that they sing. Nobody could learn that song but the 144,000. We saw that the song, as we began to just look at what this was all explaining, was their unique testimony. We can't sing their song, but we began to see that there's also a song that those of us that are servants of God in the church age, there's a song that we have as well. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be given harps. We saw that in chapter 4 and 5. And we're going to sing a song, a new song. And while we're singing 144,000, just be taking it in. Because you see, we have a unique testimony. And not only are we going to have that song and play that music when we're in heaven, we talked about the fact that in the book of Psalms, the psalmist said, on an instrument of ten strings, will I praise thee and we began to see that he has taken these bodies of ours and they're an instrument of ten strings if you will we saw we've got we got two eyes and we've got two hands and we've got two feet we have got two ears and we've got one mouth and we've got one brain we're an instrument of ten strings we play music with our life and then here comes our song the things that the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us in our walk with Him that become a song that, that other people can't learn unless they walk through the same things that, that we learn. And you see, this is where ministry is born, y'all. Because according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, do you remember what he says? We comfort others with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You know what? You go through trials... You go through tribulations, and what the Lord Jesus Christ does is He begins to come to you, and He comforts you. And you know what's happening? He's teaching you to sing. Now, some of you can't sing or trash, but you begin to sing with your life. You begin to sing a song because of your intimacy with Him. And you begin to learn that song, and then as other people go through that same difficulty, what Second Corinthians 1 is saying is we come and we're able to minister that song to them we're able to take what God has brought us through. And as they go through that, we can comfort them with the same comfort we had been comforted from God. So there's a song that's audible evidence of our connection with the Father, just as there's audible evidence of the 144,000's connection with the Father. Now we pick up where we are this morning. We're still talking about the audible evidence of those 144,000 that, that makes their connection with the Lamb and His Father so, so distinct. And we see this next through the speech of the 144,000. The speech of the 144,000 servants of our God. And this is, this is in verse 5. And in the beginning of verse 5, what he shows us, number one, is their practice. The practice of their speech their practice look at what he says and in their mouth was found no guile listen with this group of people if you wanna if you wanna know if they really got a connection with the lamb if you really wanna know that they've got a connection with the father you know what you gotta do you, you can look at it and see it that was the last point but there's another thing all you gotta do is just step back and listen and you know what? You'll hear it. 
this is a group of people through what you hear they show that they're connected we saw it through the song and oh buddy we're gonna stay in and we're gonna know they've got some incredible connection going there well we're also gonna see it and we're gonna hear it through their speech and, and this is such a beautiful contrast I, I really don't have time to, to set it all forth but it, it, coming out of chapter 13 the Antichrist is is on the scene in the tribulation period Satan is in the body of the Antichrist and, and the Bible says that Satan is a liar from the beginning he is the father of lies and what it says about the Antichrist in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 is as he's on this planet one of the ways that he dupes the entire planet is through lying wonders he's gonna perform miracles and what they're gonna do is point people to a lie in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, what it says is that multitudes of people all over this planet are going to believe the lie of the Antichrist because they see the lying wonders that he does as he's empowered by Satan, but he's telling the world that he is actually the Messiah, that he's actually God in human flesh when the reality is he is Satan in human flesh. And so here is this group of people. The contrast is just absolutely unbelievable because here's deceit all over the planet. But in this group of people, for seven solid years, check that out, for the entire tribulation period, not one second was their guile found in their mouth. Not, not a whole lot like Laodiceans, are they? You know, Laodiceans are... Uh, are a weird group man I mean on, on one hand we open our mouth and we're telling people how wonderful it is to be with Jesus while we're while we're wagging a cigarette out of our mouth you know and, and, and you know what I, I, I mentioned cigarettes last week I don't have this big phobia with cigarettes that, that's not the issue cigarettes ain't gonna send you to hell they're just gonna make you smell like you've been there that's the, the basically the <laughs> But, but now listen, it's weird in Laodicea. You know what, man? Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ, he can change your life. You know the, the problems you're having with addictions and all that? I want you to know something. He's the answer to, to your, your problems. But you know what? Cigarettes are the least of Laodiceans' problem. You know what? Some of you do well to take up smoking. I like to y'all play that on a tape sometimes and just leave that right there but it's the truth y'all because you, you, you see some of the things as we're in the midst of telling people about how wonderful Jesus is at work we'll follow that up with running the boss down with the rest of the crowd for the next three hours and while we're at work telling people how wonderful Jesus is, we're going to come home and we're going to say the most unbelievable things out of our mouth to our wives, to our kids. You're at school and you're telling all of the kids about how wonderful Jesus is and you come home and treat your mom and dad like trash. You know what? You'd be better off to smoke, man. That mouth is a, is a, is a weird, weird, weird thing. And I, I want you to notice something here. Uh, down on, on your sheet, note... The audible evidence of their connection to the Lamb and His Father is heard through the 
absence of something. Now you see, we always think that if people are going to know that we're really a Christian, we got to tell them. And we're going all over the world telling people how, you know, we're a Christian and all this, and, and, and you ought to. And you know what? The 144,000 during the tribulation period are going to do that same thing. But listen, the audible evidence of this group of people's connection with the Father is not because they're going around telling everybody how wonderful it is that they are a follower of the Lamb. No, the audible evidence that you hear from this group of people is you listen to them and there's something that is just strangely missing in that conversation. Something that is ever-present in Laodicean Christian conversations. But as you begin to listen to this group of people, it's absent. And that's something missing. What John says is guile. There's no guile found in their mouth. This same word guile is, is translated in other places in our, our King James Bible. Subtlety. It's with a B. S-U-B-T-I-L-T-Y. Subtlety. You remember that's how Satan operates? through subtlety. The next way it's translated is deceit. Again, what will be characteristic on the planet during the tribulation period, the deceit of Satan through the Antichrist, and then craft. We would understand craftiness. And, and check out what John says. There's no guile. None. Not even, not even a little bit. Now, I'll I'll just guarantee you. Now, there's a lot of wonderful folks out here today. And then there's a lot of us that are kind of like Jackie Gleason, and we have a big mouth, right? But I, I guarantee you, the best of us, we've got a little bit of God on our mouth, right? Even though we may not say it in the, the big midst of, of the room like you know some of the people that we're thinking in our minds right now oh I hope they're listening to this <laughs> even in some of us real good folks when we get with certain folks people we can trust people won't tell the real score on us we can say things to them that prove that we do have guile in our mouth but not this group of people and it's so incredible. There, oh, listen, y'all, there is such a lesson for us Laodiceans to learn from this group of people. Would you listen to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 13? I wish we had time to go there. We, we, we don't. But listen to it. This is a, a prophecy in reference to this group of people that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 14. The remnant of Israel, listen, shall do, shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Listen to it one more time. The remnant of Israel, this 144,000, shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. And again, y'all, for seven years. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine going seven years and for a seven-year period, 
absolutely no sin, absolutely nothing coming out of your mouth that would be even, inc I mean, even that close to being what the Lord would refer to as guile. Hey, let's forget seven years. You want to? Can you imagine going seven months? Forget seven months. Seven days? Uh, you know, it's kind of like this little Abraham thing. Okay, if we could go seven days without guile, would you not, you know, come in judgment? Let's forget seven days. You want to? About seven hours. Some of us, seven minutes, and it's true. I'm serious. It'd be, it'd, just, it'd be real cool to have some kind of computer readout to just show every time guile was found in our mouth in the last week. I wonder if it wouldn't average about every seven minutes. And some of us, maybe every seven seconds. Because quite in contrast to the 144,000 guile in a lot of us, even though we, we claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ, guile is constantly found in our mouth. And I, I tell you, this group of people, not a whole lot like Laodiceans, but I will tell you who they are a whole lot like. You know who they're a whole lot like? They're a whole lot like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, it says, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. It was prophesied of him in Isaiah 53 and verse 9. Isaiah said, he did no violence or, or wrong, no cruelty. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. And that's why in Luke 23 and verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no, what? I find no fault in this man. And you know what? The Lord, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ set that example, as 1 Peter 2.21 says. It's an example that he wants us to follow. But it is an example that the 144,000 follow. They follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do no sin, and no guile is found in their mouth. And because of that, they have an incredible position. That's number two. We looked at their practice, the practice of their speech. What is it that actually comes out of their, their mouth practically? And look at number two, their position. In verse 5, the beginning, it says, And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. You know what? The Lord Jesus Christ looks at them and says, And... The same way that Pilate looked at me and found no fault in me, I look at them and I find no fault in them because of their mouth. You see, and you say, well, what's the big deal with that? The big deal is over in the book of James. Turn back there just a little bit to your left. The big deal about their mouth James explains for us in James chapter 3. Now, we're going to come back here in just a few minutes. But I want you to see this in light of the 144,000. And, of course, most of you understand James has a tribulation uh, context, uh, tribulation application. And, and look at what he says in this book 
that Jews will pick up during the tribulation period and read. Look at what it says in verse 2. For in many things we offend all. We all offend God and his standard a whole lot, don't we? If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. And what he's saying is, you know what? You learn to deal with this four-ounce slab of mucous membrane that rests behind your teeth, and you'll learn a whole lot about the whole rest of your body and how to bring your body into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you don't offend in word, man, you're a perfect man. And you know what? For seven solid years, this group of people does not offend in word. No guile found in their mouth. And then, I want you to look at this next thing. Okay, so here's the 144,000. We're talking about the fact there's audible evidence in their life of their connection with the Lamb and His Father. And it, it's seen through their speech. It's heard through the, the things that you don't hear them say. They speak, but there's just something missing. There's no guile found in their mouth. That's their practice, their position. They're found without fault before the throne. And now we're going we're gonna to look at that example. And we're going we're gonna to say, now Lord, would you teach us as Laodiceans? Would you, would you teach us some things from that group of people? And let's talk about letter D, the speech of the servants of our God in the church age. That's us, y'all. Okay? Now, now we just looked at the, the position of the 144,000. And what we saw in verse 5 is this group of people, their position at the throne of God is that they are found without fault. Okay, now let me ask you something. Is there anybody else that you can think of in the Bible that is appearing before the throne of God who is without fault? Anybody? How about us? Hello? I mean, is that not right? Our position? That's, that's number one. Y'all are, y'all are worrying me. <laughs> Do you know what our position is before the throne of God, y'all? Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over there if you would. This is in the context of the Lord teaching about wives and, and husbands, but if you, if you keep reading what he says in this same passage, Ephesians chapter 5, and you'll, you'll notice in verse, 20, uh, verse 22, he addresses wives, and then down in verse 25, he addresses husbands, but you come down to verse 32, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And he says, now listen, all, all through this, what I've been doing is I've been talking to wives and talking to husbands, but what I'm wanting you to really get here is I'm talking about Christ and the church because the relationship that Christ has with his church, according to 2 Corinthians 11, 2, is like that of a husband. We have been espoused to one husband. We're called in Revelation 21, his bride. And so what he's, what he's teaching here is all about our relationship to him as our husband and look at what he says in verse 25 he says in the middle of the verse that Christ loved the church 
and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Watch verse 27. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And, and just in case you may have forgotten, go back to chapter 2. And let me remind you in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 6, or verse 5, he says, We were dead in sins, and what happened to us is he took us out of our sin and quickened us, or made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and hath raised us up together, present tense, and made us, present tense, sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this so many times before. We're all sitting in this room this morning in flesh and blood, but spiritually, according to Ephesians 2, 6, we are already, right now, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Do you believe that? Okay. Now, what he says is that the reason that Christ died, over in chapter 5, and verse 26, is so that we might be sanctified, we might be cleansed, so that he can present us to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I'm, I'm trying to show you this morning. Our position in the Lord Jesus Christ is just like the 144,000. We are without fault before the throne of God. The same thing, go over to the right through the book of Philippians and on into Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse... It should say 21 and 22 on your study sheet if you want to correct that. But at the end of verse 21, it says, Now hath he reconciled, that is, those of us that are comprise his church, he's reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's what happened to us, folks, the day that we got saved, our position in Christ is that we are holy and unblameable and unreprovable. Over in the book of Jude, we're working back to Revelation. Just before we get to the book of Revelation is the little book of Jude, just one chapter in there. And look at verse 24. Jude, verse 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, where? Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And what we begin to see here is, yeah, the 144,000 have got an incredible position. This group of people is without fault before the throne of God. Can you imagine? Yeah. Because we have that same exact position in Christ this morning. We have been placed, according to the book of Ephesians, we have been placed in Christ and so now when our father looks at us now this isn't because we're so wonderful it's because of what he did for us according to his mercy but when the father looks at us because we are in Christ he can't help but see us the same way that he sees his son you know how he sees his son faultless holy without spot or wrinkle or any such thing unblameable, unreprovable. And folks, that is our position in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And the whole message of the Bible to us is because God gave you that position that you could have never earned or merited, because He gave you that position, 
now through the life that you live match your position in Christ with your practice and now let's look at the practice our practice number two the, the practice of those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ okay he wants us to begin to live like who he made us he made us like his son he made us without fault before him and he says now now listen in the life that you live would you match that and one of the areas as we just saw from the book of James one of the areas that is so key in this whole thing is in the whole arena of what comes out of our mouth would you listen to first Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 L listen listen to the words that God commands to be true of us he that will love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile none not even a little bit do you understand L listen now what God says was tr true or will be true of the hundred and forty four thousand he commands to be true of us don't let any evil don't let any evil come out of your lips don't ever speak any guile out of your mouth Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29 listen listen to the authority of the Word of God let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth don't ever open your lips God says as a child of God one who has been placed in Christ and is holy without fault unblameable and unreprovable now that you've got that position in Christ don't ever let anything come out of your lips that would be deemed evil don't ever let any guile come out of your mouth don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth it's pretty clear y'all it's not like now this would be real nice no God says let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth now is there anybody here that can say I qualify I mean if you just looked at my life let's go back seven days anybody think you made it seven days without corrupt communication coming out of your mouth any evil come out of your lips but you know what this is one of those things you better you got to be real careful about because we're always easy on ourselves and so what I want to do is I want to show you three ways guile is found in the mouths of Laodiceans and we're only going to be able to hit this first one with the time we have remaining if we make it that far okay the, the first way that guile is found in our mouths and this is this is just a no-brainer but we need to talk about it it's by the things we say with our lips the things we say with our lips oh my you know what wouldn't it just be real neat if we just lowered the lights a little bit here and we just 
God sent us down a little, little video of all of the words that have been spoken by this group of people in the last seven days, and we're just going to go name by name through each one here, and we're just going to have all of the little blurbs, all the things that, that came out of our mouth in the last seven days. Oh, my. Would anybody, anybody think you'd be real, real proud to be a member of First Baptist Church after we went through the whole video of this, this bunch? And, and James has quite a bit to say about this problem that we're talking about. I think that all of us would say that at least to some degree we have a problem in this area. James has some, some pretty heavy-duty stuff to, to say to us about it. I, I want you to go back there again. We were there just a minute ago as he was explaining the fact that, hey, yeah, we, we blow it in a lot of areas, but, buddy, if you can ever get to the place where you're not blowing it with the things that you say, you're, 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 you're getting pretty far down the road. And what he does here in this passage in verses 1 through 12 is he, he shows us What's really going on with this, this thing of our mouth, our, our lips, our, and specifically in this passage, our, our, our tongue? And the first thing that he does is he shows us what the tongue is like. In, in verses 3, 4, and 5, what he shows us is that the tongue is small but extremely powerful. The tongue is small but extremely powerful. And, and to make his point about this, what he does is he, he proceeds from there to give us three illustrations. The first one, he says, it's, it's like a bit in a horse's mouth. And this is verse 3. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth. And after you've written that, look, look at verse 3. He says, behold, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. I don't know if you've ever, you know, worked around horses at all. I, I used to do this, you know, when we worked at that youth camp. And, you know, you get out there in the morning, you take that little thing, and you hold it in your hand. I mean, here is this, this powerful beast. I mean, this thing is incredible, man. I mean, the power in that horse. And I'm holding something in my, a little piece of metal. It's about that wide. And you just put that pup in that horse's mouth and... and, and and you, you get on, on top of that thing, and you just direct that horse anywhere you want it to go. And James says, you know what? That's, that's what the tongue is like. Your tongue sets the course and direction for your life. It, it's, it's small, but oh my, is it extremely powerful. And then he gives us another illustration in verse 4. He says, it's like a rudder of a ship. It's like a rudder of a ship. He's, look at verse 4. Behold also the ships which, though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm or a rudder, whithersoever the, the governor or the captain of the ship listeth, wherever he wants it to go. You know what he does? He just takes a little stick right here, moves a little rudder. under. I mean, here's this, this massive ship. And, and if you look underneath that thing, I mean, 
and, and you know, the ship in comparison to the horse is just, you know, huge. And, and if you take that little rudder in comparison to the ship in the same way that you take the bit to the horse, I mean, the, the, the comparison is, there's no comparison. Compared to that, that ship, the rudder that, sh that sets the course and direction for that ship is just a small little thing. And James says, are you getting what I'm saying? little tongue right there is setting the course and direction for your life so watch it and then he gives us another illustration in verse 5 he says it's like a spark that ignites a massive fire it's like a spark that ignites a massive fire look at verse 5 even so the tongue is a little member and that's the point that he's been trying to get us to see through all three of these illustrations You've got this little tiny thing in your mouth. And it boasts great things. Behold, he says, here's that, that, that third illustration. How great a mire, uh, matter a little fire kindleth. You know, you get out there in California, you know, when they've got the Santa Ana wind thing going on, and somebody's out there and with just a little flick of a cigarette, sometimes a little, just the head of that thing, just a little spark sometimes will go off. And because somebody was careless with just a small little spark, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres are just w wiped out because of that. And James is saying, now listen, you got to understand that that spark is inside of every single one of us. And I, listen, listen, church, We've been talking over the last several weeks about just where we are, the state of the church. We've been talking about the fact that Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. But I just got to tell you, some of the things that we say to one another in this church, they're inflammatory. Some of the things we say about people in this church because you see some of us are far too holy to say it to them but we'll say it about them and he says don't you understand this thing about the the tongue that spark is in you and that tongue oh my goodness it, it is just so tiny compared to the rest of your body it's nothing Really, if you cut it out, which wouldn't be really too bad of a thing for most of us, it weighs about four ounces. I go about, I go about 200. You know what? Compared to a 200-pound frame, that little four ounces ain't jack squat. But what James is trying to get us to see is that little tiny thing right there can destroy the lives of people. I mean, real people that that the tongue is is like an assassin's bullet it can assassinate the character of people it can assassinate their their reputation it can destroy them listen through that little four ounce little piece of mucous membrane in our mouth everything that god's done in this church in the last 10 years and go up and smoke just like that because people don't guard that, that little tiny
tiny member. It destroys unity. It destroys fellowship. But then he goes on, and not only shows us that the tongue is small but extremely powerful, but next, the tongue is necessary but extremely dangerous. It's necessary. Oh, but it's extremely dangerous. And, and now, what he does in this next, the next verses here, verses 6 to 8, is now he doesn't show us what it's like. Now he tells us what it is. Look at the first thing. He says, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Look at it in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body. And check this out. And setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Now, now look at some of the things he's talking about in here. Look back at the first part of the verse. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Have you ever thought about this, folks? Listen. You take the whole world of iniquity, the whole world of sinfulness, and you know what it does? It finds its expression, somehow or another, it finds its expression through the mouth. Isn't that true? Think about it. When you're ticked off, how do people know you're ticked off? Anger is expressed through our mouth, right? When there's lust in your heart, how long does it go before it's expressed somehow through your mouth? When you got bitterness in your soul, how do people know that? Oh, it's all over your face, but it also comes out through your mouth. The pride of life how do you see that? You hear it. Because of what comes out of people's mouth. Selfishness? I mean, just go through the list. Power? Revenge? I mean, just go through the list. The whole world of iniquity finds its expression through this, this thing that's in every one of our mouths. He says it's a, it's a fire and it's set on fire of hell. Next, he tells us that the tongue is an untamed beast. This is in verse 7, the first part of verse 8. It is an untamed beast. Look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. What he's saying is, you know what, you can take just about any animal there is and you can tame it. And he says, and another thing is true, you can just look around and see that it's, that's a fact. Because, you know, this group of people, if you're somewhat old, you remember that trigger, you know, and uh, I mean, we just go, Mr. Ed, Lassie, Benji, Gentle Ben, Shamu, Flipper, Arnold the pig, and for you young people, babe, you know. I, I mean, these are pigs, you know. I mean, these are horses. These are stupid dogs. All these, and we, we, we tame them. We can train them to do all kinds of stuff. 
And the point that James is trying to get us to see is we can do all of that with those beasts, but we can't tame the beast in our mouth. Look, look at verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. Wow. It's wild, isn't it? So he says it's a, it's a fire, a world of iniquity. It's an untamed beast. And then next, he says the tongue is a deadly poison. And oh my goodness. I, you know what? I don't know if this is boring you today or not. But I just want you to know this is exactly what this church needs to hear right now. It's a deadly poison. You know what? Maybe we'd all be helped if we recognized that right behind these teeth there sits a little vial of cyanide. And so as, as we move through the church, and as we move through ministry with one another, we've got to be very cautious. We've got to be very careful, lest what is behind our teeth gets dumped out onto another person. Because what James says, look at the second part of verse 8, it is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison and oh oh my goodness I wish I wish you could listen to some of the conversations we have to listen to of people who have been poisoned spiritually by some of us because of our mouth the things that we say the sharp words, the pride, the revenge, the bitterness, that jealousy, the envy, the anger that just, uh, and, and it hits people like a, like a deadly poison. And you know why we do that trash? You know why we do it? Everybody does. It's no big deal. Boy, James must have understood something that we don't then. Because James says, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And if you're not careful with that poison that's in your mouth, it'll be spilled on somebody and you will be the reason that spiritually they die. You just suck the life right out of them. So uh, the tongue, he says, it's, it's small, but oh, don't ever miss how powerful it is. And yeah, yeah it, it's, it's necessary, but oh, buddy, you've got to be so careful because it is so dangerous. And then he shows us something else. The tongue is helpful but extremely inconsistent. It's helpful, but extremely inconsistent. Now he gives us two other illustrations, and we'll just, we'll just hit these, these quickly. He, he gives us, first of all, an illustration from human nature in verses 9 and 10. 
And, and what he's saying here is that opposites shouldn't come from the, the same source. And, and then he goes to the next illustration, an illustration from nature. And what he shows us here is that in nature, opposites don't come from the same source. But look, at, look back at verse 9. Therewith, or, or with our tongues, bless we God, even the Father. Have you, have you ever stopped to think about the capacity that we have to do that with this, this thing in our mouth? We have the ability to bless God, even our Father, with that tongue. But look at the rest of it. And therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth, verse 10, proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And it's so amazing what can go on in this room and all of the wonderful things that can be said and how we can bless the name of the Lord with incredible songs and incredible prayers and we can walk out the doors of this church and with the same mouth that we just blessed God we're running down the preacher I, hey forget me but running down people people you sat near people who snubbed you, you know, People who did whatever. The same mouth that we're blessing God on one, uh, one side and, and out the other. Here comes this, this cursing. James says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. And then he gives us the illustration of nature in verse 11. Doth a fountain, and, and of course a fountain is a, is, is a well that's fed by a spring. And he says, does the a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. And he's saying, listen, you guys do something that is not repeated anywhere else in the world. Out of the same source comes two very opposite things. Fig trees give figs, y'all. Olive vines give olives. Fresh wells give fresh water. Salt wells give salt water. And what he's trying to do is get us to see that there is something majorly wrong when out of the same source two opposite things come out. He's trying to arrest our attention about some things. He's already let us know in verse 6 that the tongue defiles. He's already let us know in verse 7 that the tongue defies. And you know what he's trying to get us to see here? The tongue also displays. And Jesus let us know about this. And, and I know some of you are getting real worried because you see all the rest of the study sheet and all of it. I'm going to make this, this one point from the, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to quit for this morning. But no, 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 do you have to turn your sheet? Okay, well, don't, don't pack up, because, I mean, we're going to hit this, this last little point here, okay? Now, now listen, okay? Now, now listen. Okay, everyone's all excited because we're about ready to leave this place. What James is coming to here and what Jesus 
puts the exclamation point behind is the tongue is just a neutral messenger. We spent all this time talking about the tongue. And now what he's trying to get us to see is tongue ain't got nothing to do with it. It's just a neutral messenger. What the tongue does is it puts on display what's in the heart. You know what? We can't know what's in each other's heart, can we? You, you can't. If I do that, does, now you know what's in my heart. But you know what? If we could spend any amount of time together at all, there'd be no question about what's in our hearts. Because it's going to come out of our mouth. You see, that's what's so incredible about this group of 144,000. The fact that for seven years there was no guile found in their mouth. You know why there was no guile found in their mouth? There was no guile in their heart. And, and, and did you hear how the Holy Spirit worded it? There was no guile found in their mouth. When there's guile in your heart, you can't see my heart. You can't do heart surgery and look, oh, would you look at that guile? No, you find it in my mouth. If it's here, it'll be found in my mouth. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. And, and again, we'll make this point and we'll wrap it up and we'll move on with it next week. Look back in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and look at verse 10. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. And drop down to verse 17. Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adultery. You know what? It's a world of iniquity. It's the same thing we were just talking about, right? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Listen. What we're trying to learn from the, the 144,000, listen now, listen. It's not, wow, isn't that a great thing, man? For seven stinking years, that group of people goes and they, man, there's no guile found in their mouth. That, that did it, Harry, I'll tell you. I've come to a conclusion. Now, as a result of what we've seen from that group of people, that did it. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and I'm not going to say a bad thing about anybody else. You've got a major problem. 
Number one, you ain't going to tame that thing. You, you do it for a little while until you just can't stand it anymore. Because Jesus said, it's connected way down here. And whatever's here comes out here. And now listen. Let's, let's just go back for seven days of our land. The things that have come out of our mouth. And let's don't look at that and say, oh, man, I, I, I shouldn't have said those things. We've got to go a little deeper and ask ourselves, why did we say those things? What is that an indication of? Listen, the problem we have with our words is not a tongue problem. We say that. It is a heart problem. It reveals that there is something desperately wrong with our hearts. And I was wanting to get a lot further into the things that we say because, oh my, 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 the cross-references that, that are, they are abundant, y'all. But I think we've gone as far as the Lord wants us to go today. The issue is our hearts. And folks, listen, as we go this week, and we're trying to learn these lessons from the Laodicean or from the Lamb's 144,000, let's recognize that when, when we speak things, as they come out of our mouth, and I, I do believe that this is a, a group of people, that this week, when you speak those kind of things, it's going to, they're going to be like a vapor there for a little while and be going, uh, 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 uh. please use that as an occasion not to say, mm, man, I shouldn't have said that. Use it as an occasion to say, Oh God, look in my heart and expose to me why it is that those things come out of my mouth because I know they're in here. Show me the wickedness of my heart and let's repent of the root problem, y'all. We've been trying to deal with this thing all these years in a surface way. And I think what God's trying to get us to see is you're never going to do it. The problem isn't here. It's here. Let's pray. Now, Lord, would you please speak to our hearts? Would you please change us? And those of you that, that do know the Lord this morning, would you just pray about your heart as it is expressed through your mouth and the things that the Lord's trying to say to you today? Would you, would you turn in repentance from those things and turn to Him? And ask Him to remove those, those evil things out of your heart. And for those of you that are here this morning that, that don't know the Lord, I, I, you know, I, I almost feel like I need to apologize to you for the fact that those of us that have come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who have been placed in Him and who...
this morning are found faultless before the throne, it's almost embarrassing that there is so much fault that can be placed at our feet practically. But now listen. There's always going to be hypocrites. There's always going to be people who profess one thing with their mouth and live something different with their life. And and Jesus says that for the most part, those people don't even have the genuine item. But I do want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. We are all sinners, and sin demanded a perfect sacrifice. And because there is not a perfect sacrifice on this planet, God visited this planet in the person of Jesus Christ to become that perfect sacrifice to take our sin so that we could have a relationship with Him. That's what this whole thing was about from the very beginning. And sin interrupted the fellowship that God had with us as His creation. And so God has made a way for us to come back to Him through what Christ did in His death, burial, and resurrection. And listen, this morning, the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection can remove your sin and bring you into a relationship with God. That's what God wants in your life. And as our service is concluded, we want to invite you to respond to the invitation of God and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you can have the assurance of your salvation, the fact that your sin has been removed and that you will enter into eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes in the very near future. And our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're dismissed this morning. We invite you to come if the Lord is speaking to your heart about your need to receive Him. And we'd love to, to have somebody take a Bible and share with you how you can receive the Lord Jesus Christ today. And Lord, I pray for those folks that even now the Spirit of God will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment that you, Father, would draw people to yourself pray that the miracle of salvation would be made manifest in this room through you saving people that came in here today without Christ. And Lord, please help us. Please help us as a church to love one another, to be free from the evil of our hearts as it's made manifest through our, our mouths. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.